Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, November 19th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, November 21st. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. How's it going, Jazz? Um, you know, I can't complain. I'm doing okay. It could be a lot worse, so that's where I'm at. Okay. I totally understand that. Um, I'm doing okay, too. Um, I guess I'm kind of happy about Thanksgiving coming up because get a little break. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. And, um, yeah, happy that it's not, like, completely freezing here in New York yet. So at least we had a little bit of a fall. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of sad that it's so nice. It's like I know that, you know, it's not pleasant to be cold, but it just it always freaks me out when it's like this and it's so late in the season. <clears throat> and it's so late in the season because, you know, typically it would be chillier. Yeah. Um this time of year cuz it's almost December, so Trust, I know it's going to come and when it comes it's going to be here for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I guess we shall see. We'll see. Exactly, exactly. All right. So on the docket for today's episode, um, our national, our local news story is about the increase of New York City rats and the activity and their activity and the circumstances of this rise. Uh, for national news, we'll be talking about the uh, breakdown of the Julius Jones clemency uh, pardon that was issued by Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stint. For our world news story, we will be talking about a troubling citizenship bill in the UK, and we also have some good news about the US and China coming together on climate change. So we'll go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news story. Emily, you're up, girl. All right, guys. Hello and happy Sunday. Uh, this local story comes from a November 5th New York Times article by Ed Shanahan titled NYC Rats. They're in the park on your block, and even at your table. Reported rat sightings, health inspections, finding evidence of rat activity, and cases of a disease spread via rat urine are all up amid the pandemic. The article explains, quote, rodents are among New York's permanent features, but across the city, one hears the same thing. They are running amok like never before. Through Wednesday, there had been more than 21,000 rat sightings reported to 311 this year, compared with 15,000 in the same period in 2019 and about 12,000 in 2014. The rate of initial health inspections to uncover active rats signs uh, nearly doubled in the latest fiscal year. There have also been 15 cases this year, the most since at least 2006, of leptospirosis. Uh, which can cause serious liver and kidney damage, and in the city spread typically spreads via rat urine, according to health officials. Uh, one case was fatal. So add a plague of rats to everything else New York faces in trying to rebound from the COVID-19 pandemic. By some measures, the problem may have eased slightly before the coronavirus came, but the rodents have roared back since, thanks to a confluence of factors. The spike is mostly in areas long known as infested, health officials insist. Uh, quote, according to experts, exterminators, and city officials, the perfect pandemic storm scenario behind the surge goes like this. When restaurants closed, rats had to scavenge outside more. They found gutters and street corner baskets clogged with trash because of cuts to the sanitation department budget last year. Illegal dumping increased. 
with most people stuck at home, so did residential waste. A few months after the city shut down, construction, which drives rats into the open and had been halted like everything else, returned with gusto. Outdoor dining expanded as restaurants struggled to survive. Along the way, inspectors who typically hunt for evidence of rats were assigned elsewhere, including to mass vaccination sites and to restaurants to ensure that they were requiring vaccination proof. A wetter-than-usual summer, coupled with other effects of a warming climate that have helped rats thrive, heightened the problem, health officials said. By October, the animals, which breed prolifically, had reached their annual population peak in the city, said Jason Munchie-South, an associate professor of biological sciences at Fordham University. Now, as temperatures drop, rats may be somewhat less visible, but they will reemerge en masse in spring, ready to feast. When they do, critics say, the restaurant sheds that help save an industry will be potential feeding grounds. Abandoned ones are already rodent playpens. In a lawsuit filed last month in a bid to block the permanent expansion of outdoor dining, a group of city residents cited the structure's rat appeal among their objections. Quote, Edward Grayson, the sanitation commissioner, acknowledged that the sheds, especially those that spill past the curb, complicate the department's work and create more responsibilities for restaurants, which he expects they will meet. You're not going to eat somewhere that's disgusting, Mr. Grayson said in an interview. Last year's budget cuts have largely been restored, he said, and the department was doing everything we can to keep the streets clean. But but Antonio Reynoso, a city council member from Brooklyn who leads the sanitation committee and is the incoming borough president, said those efforts were lacking. The city feels dirtier, Mr. Reynoso said, expressing a widely shared view. The Times interviewed some locals about their rat experiences. Roshana Lee said she had been struck by the rat's boldness. Uh, I'm sorry, quote, Roshana Lee said that she had said she had been struck by the rat's boldness. I just saw a rat when we were walking down to the park and it was still daylight, she said. And I was like, damn, that's audacious. Andy Linares, the president of Bug Off Pest Control Center in Upper Manhattan, said rats had had undoubtedly become more brazen in their quest for food and harborage. He described watching one appear from under a dumpster and saunter across the street before slipping down a sewer grate. It was jaywalking, Mr. Linares, said Mr. Linares, who has operated the business for 40 years. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned last year that rats might exhibit unusual or aggressive behavior during the pandemic. But a health department spokesman said there was no evidence they were behaving differently than usual, although some locals disagree. Quote, stuffing dry ice into burrows is one way the city now fights the war on rats. Mr. Linares, the exterminator, said that poisons, bait boxes, and other devices remained popular and that sales had increased during the pandemic. The website the city reported last month that rat poison had killed at least six birds found dead in local parks since January 2020. Quote, as for the sheds, Andrew Riggi, the executive director of the New York City Hospitality Alliance, a trade group, said most restaurant owners had been diligent in keeping the structures clean and were prepared for strict sanitary measures to be imposed should outdoor dining expand permanently. Maybe it will be the catalyst for New York to change how it deals with its garbage, he said. Uh, so Emily here, I found this story particularly interesting because I have been in Barcelona for a little, about a month and a half, uh, at this point, And I shit you not, I have not seen a single rat, uh, lots of pigeons, not a single rat. So it seems like another way of life in a city is possible somehow, some way. Uh, and it got me wondering where the rat problem in New York started and if rats are indigenous to the city. 
So I actually dug a little bit into that, and this is what I found. Uh, in 2017, The Atlantic published an article by Sarah Zhang titled, New York City Has Genetically Distinct Uptown and Downtown Rats, uh, which explains, quote, New York City is a place where rats climb out of toilets, bite babies in their cribs, crawl on sleeping commuters, take over a Taco Bell restaurant, and drag an entire slice of pizza down the subway stairs. So as Matthew Combs puts it, rats in New York, where is there a better place to study them? Uh, Combs is a graduate student at Fordham University, and like many young people, he came to New York to follow his dreams. His dreams just happened to be studying urban rats. Uh, quote, as a whole, Manhattan's rats are generally, ge- I'm sorry, <clears throat> Manhattan's rats are genetically similar to those from Western Europe, especially Great Britain and France. They most likely came on ships in the mid 18th century when New York was still a British colony. Uh, Combs was surprised to find Manhattan's rats so homogenous in origin. New York has been the center of so much trade and immigration, yet the descendants of these Western European rats have held on. When Combs looked closer, distinct rat subpopulations emerged. Manhattan has two genetically distinguishable groups of rats, the uptown rats and the downtown rats, separated by the geographic barrier that is Midtown. It's not that Midtown is rat-free, such a notion is inconceivable, but the commercial district lacks lacks the household trash, a.k.a. food, and backyards, a.k.a. shelter, that rats like. Since rats tend to move only a few blocks in their lifetimes, the uptown rats and downtown rats don't mix much. When the researchers drilled down even deeper, they found that different neighborhoods have their own distinct rats. If you gave us a rat, we could tell whether it came from the West Village or the East Village, says Combs. They're actually unique little rat neighborhoods. Um, So I found that all super interesting, if not really gross. (laughs) I hope uh, you found I hope you enjoyed it, uh, even if it was a bit disgusting. (laughs) Wow. Um, thank you so much for that story, Emily. That was eerily disgusting. <laughs> uh, but I have noticed an increase of rats um, in the city and not so much in my neighborhood. I'm in Brooklyn, not so much around my house, thank God. But I have noticed um, it seems like certain parts of the city are more rat savage than others. So that was really interesting that they are different depending on which part of New York City they're in. Have you noticed any increase? Um, personally, I have not, but it could also be because I'm inside so much more. Like I'm not out and about. Like I, I've been working from home for almost a year now. Okay. And even before that, I was inside a lot. So I think it's it's probably more noticeable if you're somebody that no matter what you've been outside this whole time, like for you to see the difference or an increase. Yeah. But I definitely believe it, especially when she was talking about the um um like the trash cans overflowing and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, like they they're gonna eat that, like if it's just sitting out. I also noticed too, it depends on how the restaurants in the area take care of their sort of real estate because like near my job there's a chipotle on the corner and very often when i'm coming to work in the morning i'll see like just like this shitload of avocado uh, skins just like hanging out as if it like fell out of a bag or something um and i'm just like okay you guys aren't really trying to keep the area around the restaurant clean 
And I think, you know, I don't know if that's just people tired at the end of the night or maybe the bags busted or, you know, it could be people looking through trash. You know, there's definitely been an increase of people on the streets right now. So you never really know what's going on. But I think that has a lot, you know, that definitely has effect on it, I think. Yeah. And I also feel like it's important, like, um, like Emily was saying, like she mentioned, there's different people in the city whose job it is to keep an eye on like maintaining the rat population and making sure it doesn't get out of control. And like when you have those people and those resources being pulled in other directions, it's kind of like, you know, it might not necessarily be that the restaurant workers like aren't doing what they're supposed to do, but like if the department of sanitation is strapped and they don't have the manpower or whatever else to make regular pickups, yeah. Then even if you do put out your trash the way you're supposed to, it's going to sit out and then eventually bust open or rats will get to it. So, yeah, there's a lot of factors. Yeah. And it's like there. I was talking with a couple of my friends last night about how frustrating it is that there's always there seems to be this push across industries instead of having people who are specialists in anything it's like everyone is supposed to do a little bit of everything and is expected to be able to be pulled at a moment's notice into doing something else but then you end up with you know things not being taken care of to the same standard that you really need for them to be taken care of and that's when she was talking about like health inspectors and uh, sanitation workers and other things like being repurposed to do stuff Mm -hmm. with vaccines and stuff like that, like rather than hiring people just to do that, then their regular work is going to suffer, you know? And, you know, that has an impact because, you know, I, I feel like I'm an animal lover. Like I'm not saying I would like hug a street rat, but I'm like, you know, they're just living their life. They're just trying to survive out here. They're they're doing what they were built to do. They didn't ask to be brought here from Europe. (laughs) Exactly. So like they're, they're thriving, but you know, it's like you, it's like an ecosystem. Like it is dangerous for it to be out of hand because people do get sick. They do bring disease. Mm -hmm. So for it to not be a priority to, you know, make sure the people that maintain the issue are able to fully do that. It's really a lack of leadership and forethought in my opinion especially with outdoor dining exactly you would think that that would be something an area that you know would be um at least considered i when i first came to new york i really thought it was weird that um people don't use trash cans like proper trash cans in the midwest you can't just put your trash and bags on the sidewalk and expect Mm -hmm. them to pick it up we actually have to have them in cans and they pick it up out of the can. So you, you know, right. somebody has to go back and put the cans back. So there's an actual process to keep the stuff off the literal street. And I think that that also has an effect. I mean, there's still raccoons and other type of pests right. um, that come, but I definitely thought that was odd when I first moved here. Cause it just seems like it just is breeding disease, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. Yeah. And it is, you know, I do feel like I had another friend who mentioned this has been, it's been years at this point since the conversation came up, but that, you know, Americans, we generate a lot of waste mm-hmm. that's like not necessary that, you know, we need to rethink like why we generate all the waste that we do. And I do feel like 
sometimes it takes something being in your face and unpleasant for people to rethink that because, you know, it's just too much garbage because even the garbage, if it's taken away, where is it going? It's just like sitting somewhere rotting, probably, you know, generating more pollution. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a bigger issue than just being unsightly. Like it can make you sick. The rats are going crazy. They make you sick. Yeah, definitely. And if you're anywhere near Union Square when it fall dark, oh, watch God. your feet, man. Watch Get your out. feet, man. Watch your feet. I was sitting out there um, not too long ago uh, when I went to go see the the statues that are there, uh, the George Floyd and um, mm-hmm. Breonna Taylor statues. And uh, me and my friend were just kind of sitting down, taking in the sights, you know, and then it just like they were just running right past our feet. I just was freaked out. I jumped up. I was like, OK, we can't even sit here um, on the steps right there. So just be mindful, you know, when you're out there trying to live your best life. Don't when dark comes, just disappear. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's to be because it gets pretty scary down there. And I would also recommend people watch this um, documentary that came out five years ago. It's called Rat Film, hmm. and it's in a it's a documentary that was made by Theo Anthony, and this is just from Wikipedia. Employing techniques of essay and collage. The documentary uses rat infestation in Baltimore as a starting point to explore issues of segregation, redlining, poverty, and resource allocation in U.S. cities. And it was very fascinating and really gets at how, you know, all those things overlap, you know, because certain neighborhoods, they make sure the trash is is gone, you know, in other areas, it's kind of like it's okay for it to just be out there. And, you know, there's a history behind why that is, you know, like places that had large like immigrant communities back in the day Mm -hmm. or, you know, mostly black and Latinx communities now, um, you know, and where are the places where people tend to be most like on top of each other versus places where you do have a little more space and maybe you can have a can that you use. So, yeah, check it out. Rat film. It's not about New York City, but it is about a very old New York City with very similar patterns on the water and stuff Mm -hmm. Um, that gets into a lot of what Emily was talking about. So cool. Thank you for that. That sounds really interesting. I'm gonna check it out. And uh, yeah, be careful out there, y'all. It's (laughs) a jungle out there. (laughs) (laughs) They're taking over. (laughs) Ah! All right, y'all. We got to go ahead and hop into our first music break today. We got a great throwback hip hop track. This is Breathe and Stop by Q-Tip. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news segment, um, I'm taking the information for this story from an article on CNN um, by Decone and Doan. Uh, and the title of the article is Who is Julius 
Jones, whose death sentence was commuted by Oklahoma's governor. And then at the end, I'll add some sentiments from the Innocence Project um, page about this story. Julius Jones had been scheduled to be executed Thursday afternoon for the murder of Paul Howell in 1999. Jones, however, says he is innocent. According to his clemency petition, Jones and his attorney says he spent nearly two decades on death row for a crime he did not commit due to, quote, fundamental breakdowns in the system tasked, sorry, quote, fundamental breakdowns in the system tasked with deciding his guilt, end quote, including ineffective and inexperienced defense attorneys, racial bias among his journey and alleged prosecutorial misconduct. Jones' case gained renewed attention in 2018 when the ABC document series The Last Defense spotlighted his case. Today, he counts among his supporters celebrities, local clergy, college students, and others in his community, along with more than 6 million people who have signed a Change.org petition asking Stitt to prevent his execution due to questions surrounding his, his case. So a little background of the case. Uh, Paul Howell was killed in a carjacking the night of July 28, 1999, when he, his adult sister, and daughters pulled into his parents' driveway, according to court documents. Howell's sister, the document says, described the shooter as a black man who she said was wearing jeans, a white t-shirt, a black cap, and a red bandana over his face. Jones, 19 at the time, was arrested a few days later after authorities found a murder weapon wrapped in a red bandana inside his family's home. Jones was tried alongside a co-defendant who was sentenced to 30 years in prison after pleading guilty to first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit a robbery per online court documents. The co-defendant testified against Jones, who was convicted and sentenced to death. Jones' clemency's petition raised several points of contention in his case, one being his alibi. Jones' family said he was home with them that night of the murder, per the clemency petition. The jury, who also not shown, who was also not shown a photo of Jones taken before, taken days before Howe's killing, that the petition says would have shown he did not match the shooter's description. The red bandana is another point of conflict. Jones Jones's clemency petition cites several individuals who said his co-defendant Christopher Jordan admitted to killing Howe and hiding the weapon and the bandana inside his house. An attorney for Jordan told ABC News in September that his client denies confessing to these crimes. Governor Stitt announced he decided to commute Jones' sentence to life and death without the possibility of parole, saying in a statement on Twitter he came to the decision after prayerful consideration. The Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board has twice recommended Jones' sentence to be commuted to life in prison with the possibility of parole most recently in a three-to-one vote on November 1st. The ruling was a boon to Jones's many supporters, but Republican governors on Thursday said he was commuting the sentence with the condition Jones will not be eligible for a commutation, pardon, or parole for the rest of his life. So that is just kind of a recap from CNN um, on the innocence project page. They have a breakdown of this case and obviously they've been involved with this case um, for quite some time. And I thought that this was just really interesting thing. They have a couple of facts that you need to know about the case. 
Uh, number one, Julius Jones was at home having dinner with his parents and sister at the time of the murder. However, his legal team failed to present his alibi at his original trial. His trial attorneys did not call Mr. Jones or his family members to the stand. Number two, Mr. Jones did not match the description of the person who committed the crime, which was provided by an sole eyewitness. The person who killed Mr. Howe was described as having one to two inches of hair, but Mr. Jones at the time had a shaved head. Number three, a man named Christopher Jordan matched the eyewitness hair description, but claimed only to have been the gateway driver and not the shooter in the trial. He was the state star witness against Mr. Jones. In exchange for testifying that Mr. Jones was the shooter, Mr. Jordan was given a plea deal for his alleged role in the, as the gateway driver. He served 15 years in prison, and today he is free. Wait, Teresa, are you saying the getaway driver? Yeah, the getaway driver. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Number four, three people incarcerated with Mr. Jordan at different times have said in sworn affidavits that Mr. Jordan told each of them that he committed the murder and framed Mr. Jones. None of these three men have ever met Mr. Jones, and they do not owe they do not know one another and none of them have been offered a shorter sentence or incentive in exchange for disclosing Mr. Jones's confessions. Um, so that's pretty much a good um, place to stop. This is a really interesting child case to me because obviously um, over time, you know, the justice system always has its ways of uh, implementing bias and, just kind of excluding important information when they have a job to do, right? When they're um, focused on getting a conviction for whatever reason. But I feel like there's just so many points of contention in this case that were not considered. And the fact that this governor has now, yes, pardoned him from being executed, this man is not eligible for parole for the rest of his life. I'm not sure if this is a win. What do you think? Yeah, you know, it makes me think about how um, it was a, a news story that just came out about the men that were convicted of killing Malcolm X have just been yeah found, you know, that that, you know, what they were framed, like there were other people that have been said they did it. And, you know, it's, 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 it isn't justice. And I, I hope, I hope, but I'm not sure if it actually will happen that when these stories come out, that people understand these are not these freak instances where it's just so rare or whatever. It's like there, of course there are people that are in prison that have done like horrible things and it's indisputable. I'm not disputing that, but I really think people need to understand how easy it is, especially if you're black or you're on the margins in other ways. Like if you're black and poor or from like a certain class or immigration background it's very easy to get caught up in some oh you look like right the person that did the and then once those wheels start turning against you it's not a whole lot stopping them from continuing on you know because if you're not you know some big famous person or someone that has a lot of like systemic power behind you it's like who cares like you know we have someone we're going to say that you did it. You look close enough to somebody who would do it. So whatever, like your life doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. When I was in grad school, I did a project on the Innocence Project and how that organization works and, you know, how it was originated and um, why it's not like mainstream. A lot of people don't really know about it until cases like this make the news. 
Um, and what I found in that in doing the research was that, you know, obviously this organization is not something that the justice system wants to be, you know, um, a thriving organization that helps people. So there is, you know, systemic ways of kind of keeping their research and things like that on the hush. The other part about it is that they do all of this work. They do all of this work pro bono. There are lawyers who go and and investigators who go and research, you know, all the public records and the media around in the cases so that they can find the loopholes to help people. The saddest part is that most times they may get one, uh, one thing for another. It's never just like a, a flat out, like reduction of charges. That's very rare to happen. What normally happens is something like this. We'll give you this, but this is the contentious behind that. Or maybe they didn't do it, but somebody still needs to pay. And so all of that work that, that goes into the research and the background and, you know, talking to witnesses and talking to people who were around, it kind of just goes under wraps. And what, is, it, what it shows us is that when the, the original trial is happening, the people who are up on trial normally don't really have strong defense because they either have a, a public defender, a lack of funding to do what they need to do to protect themselves, and they just kind of get thrown off to the side. Um, and it's really scary. You know, that after all of this time, this man has already served 20 years of his life. He was co- arrested when he was 19. And now he'll be in Yikes. there at, at 19 years old. And now he'll be there till he dies for a crime that somebody else confessed to. It's, it's, it's awful. I mean, his sister was in an interview saying, you know, now we got to put our, this, this is a great win. You know, we thank everybody for all their support. Now we're back to the drawing board. But the governor's um, contention around this saying that he'll never be eligible, he kind of like jeopardized any future parole board or future governor pardon or anything like that that could happen in this case. Limiting the ability for anything to ever change. Yeah, no, I feel you. Like, it is very, I'm, you know, and I'm happy for his friend because I'm sure they would rather have him alive than dead, you know, so I can understand why, like, from that perspective, and also from his perspective, shit, that that's still, like, amazing, but at the same time, it's like, what type of life is that, and how much has he missed out on? Exactly. You know, and it's, and I've said it before, but it's really like, you know, it never ceases to blow my mind, like how you can be responsible for the death and illness of millions of people, but if you're like a white man in a suit and the and you're doing it, you know, because of you know decisions you make with your business practices, like you'll never see the inside of a cell, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas something like this, where like it's a case of you know one individual and it was you know a tragic circumstance, of course that someone died. Yeah. But it's like not even clear who did it or it's clear that it's not this person. Right. But it's like everything in their power is put up to make sure that that person gets put away. Like, it's just so disgusting. Like, and then you have the flip side of it where like you could just be anybody, you know, when I see police and I'm, I think, you know, I'm a relatively clean cut person or whatever, but I always have like a sense of fear on the back of my mind. Cause it's like at any point somebody could say, Mm-hmm. Well, you look like so-and-so or they don't like the way you talk to them or whatever. And then the next thing you know, like you're caught up in the system and you can't get out of it. And because exactly. you don't have, you're not the right color and you're not the right class. That's, it's like curtains for you. 
Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's really and even with all this publicity, like like you said before, he's still going to spend the rest of his life in prison. His entire life, you know, the what what kills me about stuff like this is that, you know, with the death penalty. Right. This man spent 20 years and you're going to kill him after 20 years. Like like what what <sighs> what are you how are we gaining? How How is this justice? I just don't understand what 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 they expect to happen. Uh, there's one other comment on the um, Innocence Project website. I think it's important and relevant. I'm going to read it right now. Uh, one third of the district attorney Macy's death penalty convictions have been overturned due to prosecutorial misconduct. Many of those whose convictions were vacated are black people. To date, 10 people sentenced to death and murder cases in Oklahoma have been exonerated. So there's a strong history of this down there and in many states you know i'm sure i you know we haven't done a, a story on right. the death penalty in a while but that just goes to show that you know these systems are designed to be screwed up just by default and on purpose so you won't be able to have justice even if it was working right this is designed to put people in in these situations that they'll never get out of Right. And, you know, I do, I also strongly encourage people to look into, I know I've mentioned it, but do some research on like the history of policing and prisons in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and like the connections to slavery and, you know, getting free labor out of people, you know, where it's in the interests of the state, like to have like a surplus population of individuals just locked away you know, working for nothing, you know, being used in ways where it's like their population of the prison will count for some things, but it won't count for like representation, like in the government, for example. And it's like, well, that sounds like how you had slaves in some states for many years where they were the majority of the population, but they were not represented like in the count of, you know, senators and other representatives for the government were allocated. And we see a lot of that same shit happening now. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's really, it's it's eerily similar, but once you understand the connection, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you see why you have this, you know, even though the person is innocent, it's like there's you're still going so hard to just keep them there. Yeah. You know, just like you have people like they, you know, they weren't actually a slave, like they had freedom papers or whatever, but it's like, well, you know what, I'm going to go like kidnap this person right, and and say that they ran off. And then once that happened, it was like, it was nothing you could do. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, just a huge um, show of support for Julius and his family and all of the people that supported him. I uh, read a couple of stories. There were walkouts at colleges in Oklahoma and support. A lot of celebrities jumped in to support him. But shout out to the six plus million people who signed the petition on change.org um, for his clemency. I think that this is, you know, um, uh, organization and a method of protest that is not really highlighted a lot. A lot of people think it doesn't do anything. But when you think about how far this case has gotten into the media and all the years that his sister and his family has been working, things like these petitions and organizations that support these causes, they really help to turn the table for people that who, who like we may not have even known about this if we didn't, you know, if they didn't do that work. And it's not just the petition, but it's just the overall message of bringing people's attention to things that they need to know about so right yeah I agree with that I think I do think sometimes people can go a little hard with being dismissive of petitions and stuff but at the 
at a very basic level, it's a great organizing tool because a lot of things you don't even know about. Exactly. Until someone's like, sign this petition. There's some shit you didn't even know what's going on. And that's important, you know? Yeah. Those are small steps that we can take, you know, as uh, regular human beings to help one another, just spread the word. So if you get a chance, check out change.org. There's a couple of other different uh, organizations that you can just find out, be in a know of what's happening, because you never know if you may need the support of strangers sometime in your life. You know, we all need each other for various reasons in this life. So I just wanted to make sure I brought some attention to that. All right, y'all, it's time for our next music break before we hop into our world news story. Um, this is a jazz track, and it's by Alphamist. It's called First Light. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we will have our world news segment. Jasmine, you're up. Okay, so this is um, a very scary story uh, from across the pond. Um, The article I'm going to read is written by Haroon Siddiqui, who's the legal affairs correspondent for The Guardian. The title is New Bill Quietly Gives Powers to Remove British Citizenship Without Notice. Um, individuals could be stripped of their British citizenship without warning under a proposed rule change quietly added to the Nationality and Borders Bill. Clause number nine says, notice of decision to deprive a person of citizenship of the bill, which was updated earlier this month, exempts the government from having to give notice if it is not quote unquote reasonably practicable to do so, or in the interests of national security diplomatic relations or otherwise in the public interest. Critics say removing citizenship, as in the case of Shemaima Begum, who fled Britain as a schoolgirl to join Islamic State in Syria, is already a contentious power, and scrapping the requirement for notice would make the Home Secretary's powers even more draconian. Francis Weber, the vice chair of the Institute of Race Relations, said, This amendment sends the message that certain citizens, despite being born and brought up in the UK, having no other home, remain migrants in this country. Their citizenship and therefore all their rights are precarious and contingent. It builds on previous measures to strip British-born dual nationals, who are mostly from ethnic minorities, of citizenship and to do it while they are abroad. 
measures used mainly against British Muslims. It unapologetically flouts international human rights obligations and basic norms of fairness. Home Office powers to strip British nationals of their citizenship were introduced after the 2005 London bombings, but their use increased under Theresa May's tenure as Home Secretary from 2010, and they were broadened in 2014. The requirement to give notice had already been weakened in 2018, allowing the Home Office to serve notice by putting a copy of it on a person's file, but only in cases where their whereabouts were unknown. The new clause would remove the need for notification altogether in a range of circumstances. It would also appear to be capable of being applied retrospectively to cases where an individual was stripped of citizenship without notice before the clause became law, raising questions about their ability to appeal. Maya Foa, the director of Reprieve, said, this clause would give Priti Patel, and Priti Patel is the um, home secretary. She's a conservative, uh, even though I will note like she herself is the child of immigrants, um, but has been very hardline against um, people of color in the UK. So back to the article. This clause would give Priti Patel unprecedented power to remove your citizenship in secret without even having to tell you and effectively deny you an appeal. Under this regime, a person accused of speeding would be afforded more rights than someone at risk of being deprived of their British nationality. This once again shows how little regard this government has for the rule of law. The U.S. government has condemned citizenship stripping as a dangerous denial of responsibility for your own nationals. Ministers should listen to our closest security ally rather than doubling down on this deeply misguided and morally abhorrent policy. Other proposed rule changes in the bill have already attracted criticism, including rendering claims from anyone arriving in the UK by an illegal route inadmissible, while criminalizing them and anyone who seeks to save their lives, and giving border force staff immunity from prosecution if people die in the channel during quote-unquote pushback operations. Um, and I, I think it was a few months ago, Emily had done a story about the pushback operations where you're basically, you know, people are struggling, you know, fleeing for their lives and they're just being pushed back into the ocean. Uh, the Home Office said British citizenship is a privilege, not a right. Deprivation of citizenship on conducive grounds is rightly reserved for those who pose a threat to the UK or whose conduct involves very high harm. The Nationality and Borders Bill will amend the law so citizenship can be deprived where it is not practicable to give notice, for example, if there is no way of communicating with the person. Um, and this is uh, an older, just a snippet from an older article that was on Al Jazeera. It was um, written by Fatima Regina. The article is called Shamaima Begum and the Conditionality of British Citizenship. And this is just like a, a snippet that I thought was relevant to this more recent story. Uh, the author writes, the Windrush generation, the immigrants from Caribbean countries who arrived in the UK after World War II to address labor shortages is another racialized group that the state tried to purge from Britain. 
As they faced unlawful deportation orders, many argued they should be allowed to stay in the country because they came here to help us rebuild Britain. Such arguments, however, are counterproductive as they attempt to make these immigrant citizenship rights conditional to their contributions and servility to the state. After all, British citizens who are white are never asked to be servile to the state or make substantial contributions to the nation to hold on to their passports and remain in the country. Um, so yes, like just knowing historically the atrocities that are often preceded by stripping people, certain groups of people of their citizenship very spooky times um, for anyone that is not white in the UK. Um, So the bill has not, it hasn't become the full law. Like it's still like in the review stage at this point. Um, But I'm hoping that it fails because it's, it sets a really, really dangerous precedent. And there's already been, you know, I already know of people like being sent back to Jamaica and stuff and they have never seen Jamaica a day in their life. Like don't know anybody. But, you know, it's like they get picked up, you're black and you're of a certain background or you're, you know, in other people's cases, they might be South Asian or, you know, you just don't look, quote unquote, like you belong. You run afoul of the law and then it's basically at their discretion Mm. if they're going to set these, you know, wheels in motion to strip you of your citizenship. That's awful. Just just a pure thought that you know, this has always been a conversation I feel like in Britain, though. Like, I feel like this is, you know, like a common experience for uh, people of color there. And then just wait the way that the UK, um, you know, wanted to split from the EU and like all the various things that's happened um, with where you belong over there. <laughs> it just seems like a, a conversation we've heard. But this is awful because you are, first of all, shipping people to places they've never been uh without any explanation and and what are they how do you fight back in the government like how do you fight back to them from inside the country you can't you can't do anything to protect yourself or defend yourself if it happens right it's really you know it's like there's already there's already laws in place for like if you are being accused of having committed some type of a crime there's already a system in place, you know, and I'm I'm not saying that like their justice system is all that, like I know ours isn't, but it's like you have mechanisms where you, that they go to trial, like you have to bring evidence and then there's some type of system of punishment for that person. Going this extra step of trying to say, because of what you've done or what we are saying you did, and also because of your background, we're going to take the additional step to say that you are not an actual citizen, even though these are people that, you know, in many cases were born and raised in the country. They don't have any other home. It's very, very scary. And it's it's unnecessary, you know, because like I said, it's not, you know, if someone were, if this person were a white British person, and it, it, you don't even have to make it a hypothetical. It's like there are, like, there's unfortunately, like, a very swift rise in, like, fascist violence and, like, white nationalist nationalist terrorism, like, in the mm-hmm. U.S. and also throughout Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Are you trying to, you, 
are the people who do shit like that not British citizens? Exactly. You know, like when it's clear as night and day that they are, you know, they have an agenda that's like very racist, that's very violent. You know, I'm not saying that she should have gone off to join the ISIS state when she did. Like, I think she, I don't, I'm not sure if she was a minor when she did it or if she was an adult. I'm not sure. It says she was a teenager. She was a teenager. Yeah. yeah. But, and I, I think their laws are different as far as when you're an adult or whatever. I think she may have been like 19 or something, but whatever. It's like she, I'm not saying what she did was right, but it's like there's already stuff in place for dealing with people who break the law or who do stuff like that. So going that extra step to further other this person, yeah, it just puts everyone else that, you know, you don't have the right complexion for the protection. Like you have to be afraid, you know, because you never know, like if you might be accused that you might do something or you might be accused of something. And it's like, you're now, you're now subject to a whole different web of rules than the next person because they're white you know so it's and you're not able to challenge it you're not able to appeal you're not able to do anything it's like a final situation right and I was just thinking like they mentioned in the article I just read how like there's people who they're already in the process of appealing because it you know this was they were not given notice so like now this if it this is approved then all those things will probably be thrown out and they won't be able to continue um, with their appeal wow so it's I'm hoping and praying that it doesn't go through and, you know, especially the British of all people, you know, I just always like to remind people of historical context. Like Mm -hmm. they are the ones that went around like forcing people to be subject to the crown and shit. And when they did not want anything to do with that, where you're in your own nation minding your own damn business and then here come the british army telling you that you got to be subject to them (laughs) and then like in the case with windrush and also with other um non-white communities that are from the former colonies it's like okay you're taking advantage you're extracting resources from these places right you're expecting these people to come and like work for you and do all these different jobs that maybe a lot of you know upper class and especially upper class white people don't want to do but you want to treat them like they're disposable. Yeah. Creating you know, a social order that don't even exist. Right. It's, it's like in your at, mind, folks. <laughs> you know, yeah. And it's like, or look in the, you want to see who's responsible for a lot of, you know, the mayhem and stuff you see in the world. The British government needs to look in the damn mirror. Yeah. You know, because a lot of these places that are in upheaval around the world would not be that way if it were not for colonialism, imperialism. And they mm-hmm. pretty much wrote the Bible on that one. And then other countries all, like took part in it as well. Yep. So, you know, I just, they have no moral authority. I don't think any government does really to be like, oh, like we're, this is for the protection of the nation. It's like bullshit. My thing is how did, like, I'm reading, I'm looking at this article on Washington Post. Why, why, how are they telling her she can claim citizenship in another country where she has roots? That don't mean shit. What what does that mean? You have roots there. You have a cousin from there, so you can go claim citizenship. They don't know, <laughs> and no nation is just gonna let you claim citizenship like I that. I think it. Well, to be fair, like there are, you know, like I know in the U.S., like we we're one of the few places where we have um, citizenship by birthplace. Whereas a lot of other places, if you 
if you have like grandparents from that country, you're allowed to be a citizen. Like I know Ireland does that. I think Italy. Wow. That's um, interesting. I never knew that. Yeah. Or like if your parents are from a place, like you are automatically seen as being like a citizen, like you have the ability to be a citizen of that place. Okay. Um, so like that, that is a thing where it's possible that, but every country is slightly different. And of course, like it doesn't, why would you want to get citizenship in a place you've never been? You know, it's like, um, I didn't know that about the citizenship question. I, th- I think that's interesting, but it still, to me, just feels like they're it's still wrong. Yeah. But I just wanted to, yeah, yeah, I did want to clarify, like, that's not like a made up thing. It is true in a lot of places, but it's yeah. like, practically, if you have no real roots in a place or knowledge of it, right, that it doesn't that's make sense to, to just say yeah. that that's like an automatic thing Ooh, that's that's deep we definitely have to keep watching this story because i just i hate that we have to not not hate that we have to consider things like this because i feel like things like this happen that that are not in the law not, not in the media they happen anyway like these things happen behind closed doors i think right. the fact that they're trying to make this like a bill a law it's just really bringing a lot of shit to the forefront that you know people act blind to that happens anyway you know what i'm saying right and it's it's scary because you know it's such a big country or like it's such it's still a global power and it's like all these other places that are also like very xenophobic also dealing with um rising numbers of migrants coming especially with climate change and like other forms of upheaval it's scary that if england goes through with this and it works you know Mm -hmm. other places are going to yeah they're gonna be like yeah like we're gonna do that too and like get rid of all these people like when brexit happened there were people that were just they reported just going about their day and people would just at random be saying stuff like we're gonna get you out of the country and stuff and it's been years of that building up wow you know and it's scary like then people think they can start attacking you in the street Or, you know, they get bold with the way they want to treat you to show that they don't think you ever really belong. Mm. It's, yeah, it's. It's awful. People try to own the world and they really don't. It's all of ours and none of ours at the same time. Well, we'll definitely keep watching that. Thank you so much for that um, very interesting world news story. And now, Emily, what's up with the good news? Uh, And now for the good news. This story comes from a November 10th New York Times article by Lisa Friedman titled China and U.S. at odds on many issues agree on a surprise climate deal. The article explains, quote, in an unexpected development, the United States and China on Wednesday announced in a joint statement that they will both do more to cut fossil fuel pollution this decade. The terms of the deal weren't groundbreaking, but the fact that agreement occurred at all is notable, considering the badly strained ties between Washington and Beijing over trade, human rights, Taiwan, and other serious differences. Despite that, according to American and Chinese officials, the agreement was the product of months of meetings between Mr. Xi and Mr. Kerry, President Biden's global climate envoy, before they arrived in Glasgow for the conference known as COP26. Uh, The two also held near-daily discussions uh, at the summit, these officials said. Xi Zhenhug is uh, China's top 
Ji Zhen Hug. I'm so sorry. Let me read that again. Ji Zhen Hua is, quote, China's top climate change envoy. Quote, on Wednesday, the world's two largest greenhouse gas emitters sounded more like allies in the fight against climate change than fierce rivals, with both Mr. Xi and Mr. Kerry saying both nations were responsible for keeping rising global temperatures from reaching dangerous levels. We both see the challenge of climate change at... We both see the challenge of climate change as existential and a severe one, Mr. Xi said. As two major powers in the world, China and the United States, we need to take our due responsibility and work together and work with others in the spirit of cooperation to address climate change. Quote, Wednesday's joint U.S.-China declaration said that both countries will accelerate the transition to a global net zero economy, referring to the the goal of net zero emissions of carbon dioxide, the most important greenhouse gas. It also calls on both countries to strengthen their emissions plan. In addition, China agreed to phase down coal consumption during its 15th five-year plan, which starts in 2026. However, the agreement did not extract any new pledges from China about when it will stop spewing ever larger amounts of fossil fuel emissions into the atmosphere and instead begin to reverse course. China has said it will stop increasing its greenhouse gas emissions before 2030, which it often refers to as the date they will peak. But in Wednesday's agreement, China did not specify exactly when that would occur, and American officials have been pushing their counterparts to set a clear earlier date. Quote, China has resisted agreeing to a goal of keeping temperature rise to 1.5 degrees because it would require the country to make steeper and more immediate cuts than it has so far pledged. But in a significant step, China agreed to develop a national plan to cut methane, a potent greenhouse gas that the country has so far not mentioned in its plans for curbing emissions. Uh, So there's definitely a lot of work to be done, but to me, this felt like a really important step forward. So that is my good news for the week. Thank you so much for that good news story, Emily. And that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you all so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day. It's called Rich Kids, and it's by Ayana Lee. Happy Sunday. See you next week. Bye, everybody. to my name and some hours to burn got some tears on my face from the lessons i've learned and i'm broke in a city full of rich uh, radio free brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy education free expression and public art we rely primarily on donations from listeners like you every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate.